This is the Compiling Podcast with Rob Z and Friends, where I talk to technical experts about their day-to-day work and what they do in between. For more information, visit compiling.publicgeeking.com. Thanks for listening. This is the Compiling Podcast with Rob Z and Friends. I'm Rob Z, and today we get to talk to Shelby Switzer. They're the Director of Digital Services for the City of Baltimore and have an extensive history in civic tech. And trying to select a topic to cover with Shelby was a little bit of a challenge. And here's why. I've spent a good amount of time with them at various conferences. And in between the talks and when you're hanging out, you know, you sit around, you start having idle chat. And they're the kind of person where that idle chat is going to take you into some really interesting places. They have an incredibly wide variety of interests. So I kind of had to rely on them to help me narrow this down and figure out where to focus on. So today, we're going to start off talking about civic IT and how technology is applied to the government space and their experiences there, which I found very, very interesting, but also very, very similar and sometimes different from a lot of the experiences we have in other industries. Um, but then we explore their recent adventures in creative writing. Uh, first, we celebrate the uh, first publication of one of their short stories. That's really huge. Uh, and then we chat a bit more about their writing process and kind of understanding how they craft their story, where they get their ideas, etc. So, you know what? Enough chat. Let's get to it. So, hey, first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. It's uh, God, it's great to see you again. I haven't, I haven't talked to you in forever, I think, at this point. The last time was a, a RustFest conference. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. So, I know who you are. Tell everybody who's listening who you are. Introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Shelby Switzer. I use they, them pronouns. I'm the director of digital services for the city of Baltimore and the mayor's office. Um, and I am currently based in the city of Baltimore in my house. Cool. Now, this is interesting. So you're working for the city of Baltimore. How new is this job for you? It's, has it been a year yet? It has only been, this is my fourth month. Fourth so month. So very new. Okay. And prior to this, you were, you were still working in, for the, for the lack of a better way of saying it, civic tech, right? I mean, you've been working with cities, you've been working with uh, municipalities, state organizations, I guess, to kind of help them. Tell me a little bit about this. How did you get into this? Because I know even prior to this, you were working for, I don't know, it's not called AmeriCorps, was it Civic Corps? I can't remember what it was called. Um, U.S. Digital Service. U.S. Digital Service. So tell me a little bit, like, what inspired you to get into this? What are you seeing in this space that excites you? Yeah, so I kind of first got involved in civic tech about, I mean, like probably 10 years ago now, when I started getting into tech, generally, my um, dad was involved with a civic tech startup in South Carolina that then I got involved with. Um, It was called Voterheads. Um, It's still around, although they pivoted a bit. Um, It was really, the original vision was to have a social media platform and easy to access place, easy to understand place for local government you know, politics, government. Um, So, you know, so you can see, for example, what's happening in city council without having to actually go to a city council meeting because nobody has time for that. Um, And then be able to also give your city council members your opinions or thoughts on specific line items. Um, 
And so I got involved from a kind of content and marketing perspective because it was before I learned how to code. Uh, but then while I was there, the CTO became my mentor. I learned how to code. He and I started doing other projects together. Um, and then I got involved with RustFest, um, which uh, was awesome. I love RustFest. Um, and I started just getting further into technology. And then at the same time, started learning about all of these volunteer organizations, um, most of them under the Code for America banner. So Code for America is a nonprofit national organization. And one of their original programs was a brigade network. So the idea of having brigades or small groups of volunteers across the country who were all geared towards helping government do tech better, doing things with open data, open source. Um, that, unfortunately, the brigade network has been sunsetted, mm. um, although there's still plenty of volunteer groups around. But Code for America no longer supports the brigade network. Um, but I, you know, you know, a long time ago, I was getting involved in these organizations. I moved to Atlanta, got involved with Code for Atlanta, moved to Denver, got really involved as a co-organizer with Code for Denver. Um, and um, yeah, and basically, it's just been a, a big part of my career and mission since then. That's cool. That's really cool. So like, what are the challenges from a technical developer standpoint that you are helping to overcome for for a lot of these organizations like what are you seeing as the most exciting things the most exciting challenges to tackle here yeah <laughs> i would say that well i mean it's kind of interesting my initial reaction is that the hardest stuff to do in government is not necessarily tech related no you know the big challenges <laughs> there's big organizational issues there's lots of legacy tech um, you know, policy, bureaucracy, you know, all the things that we like to complain about, administrative burden, paperwork, um, you know, things that haven't changed in decades. Um, but, you know, a lot of that is definitely not technical, or at least not, you know, coding. But on the flip side, there is actually lots of really hard technical stuff to be doing too, you know, for example, modernizing from a mainframe system to a modern cloud system. Um, you know, taking really hairy, complex systems that are spread out across, you know, some things that were built in silos in one department, some things that are like SaaS products or vendors, um, and that are maybe just being connected through nightly batch processes, all of these things, um, they're super complex, and they have such a really big impact, and they have such high, um, like, uh, availability needs. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, making sure that we're not messing anything up as we migrate or try to upgrade things. Um, those are hard tech problems for sure. So, um, you know, there's, there's organizational stuff. There's also some fun, complex coding things to do. So, I mean, like, I think, you know, I've been to one too many, you know, <laughs> chamber of commerce meetings, one too many city council meetings. I've, you know, I've seen some of the kind of, the trouble that you've had to overcome with some of that the it's not even just the politics sometimes it's just the education right like i mean we're talking about folks who may not be the most technically proficient crowd so like when you're as you're coming in and you're trying to you know get buy in on some of these projects like what are what are some of the the tricks that you use like how do you how do you appeal to that need what are what are you looking at as the levers to really move these things forward yeah. Um, so one I would say is one way to get buy-in is to 
make sure that everybody is aligning on what the ultimate end goals are and kind of keeping the public interest front and center. Um, and often that's expressed in terms of user needs. Um, so doing lots of user research and trying to make sure that you're prioritizing um, work that is gonna move the needle with some goal um, or impact measure um, that is largely related, I think, to user needs and customer experience. Um, and that, that's one of the reasons why I'm excited about the executive order that the Biden administration came out with in the past year that's all about customer experience. Um, I can probably find a link to it later, but that's just like, we have to prioritize customer experience to rebuild trust in government. Um, and when you have the you know top authority in the land you know, within federal government saying, we need to prioritize customer experience, then you can start to use that as a way to say, well, we can't settle for what we've been doing before. We can't settle for servers that are down on the weekend because we know the public you know is going to be actually using our websites on the weekends um and so you can prioritize the customer experience or some other shared goal or impact um and make sure that everybody feels like we're going in the same direction then it can start to um be easier hopefully to get buy-in um to make some of the bigger changes um you know i think also there's just so much power in showing people what's possible with prototyping and with being able to just put something in the in somebody's hands to say, you know, you thought that like building some system to make scheduling for your employees um, better would be so hard, but actually like <laughs> I just made something with Calendly. It took me five minutes, you know, here's, here's what's possible. It doesn't have to be super complicated. We can use off the shelf products. Um, but also we can build things very quickly and easily with so many of the modern frameworks out there. Um, you know, one of my first uh, languages and frameworks I learned was Ruby on Rails. And it's so fast to spin up like a solid, stable web application. With, with APIs Ruby on Rails. and everything. Yeah, with, with a yeah, APIs out of the box, for sure. So, um, you know, being able to just show how quick and possible it is. Um, to actually do the tech work, I think is really good. And then that lets you kind of really put the focus and energy onto, well, like now we can spend the time like really fleshing out the design and figuring out what the user needs are because we know that the tech part will hopefully be a lot easier than you thought it was or at least less expensive. So now, I mean, you're four months into the gig in Baltimore. I don't want to throw the city of Baltimore under the bus here or anything, but like how, <laughs> what kind of like, legacy stuff have you had to overcome because even to get to this point where you can do these kinds of uh, rapid prototypes even like integrating with the calendar or something that implies that you have some access to connect the calendly data to the city's data does that already exist or is that sort of where you need to start like what is the state of city it i mean is it is it kind of across the board or, or can it be argued that the industry is is moving forward yeah, I'll speak more broadly than just the city. Um, because fair, fair at enough. Least the city, because I think a lot of a lot of what I'm going to say it really applies to any city or town or state or <laughs> federal government. Um, and it's that there's the, the, there's this idea of IT, but there's also this major phenomenon called shadow IT, mm -hmm. and you have IT, which is the like by the books kind of organizational, um, you know, compliance oriented, uh, heavily structured, um, you know, way that the city or way that the state or whoever is doing information technology. 
and often that is pretty centralized. Um, often it's like very um, focused on risk and security and compliance. I'm um, less on you know building or problem solving, although that definitely changes. And I'm not saying that um, that that's necessarily the case in Baltimore, um, but because it's so risk averse and because a lot of the IT culture and tools and technologies are pretty legacy, they've been around for a long time. Um, they, they're very slow. They're not geared towards helping city staff uh, respond to the needs of residents. And that's really where you start to see the rise of shadow IT. So this is when basically city employees or state employees will just go out and they'll, they'll solve their own problems without doing it um, in a by the book sort of way. Like, you know, pl- I'm sure plenty of people in city government have Calendly, for example, and never got a, you know approval. Sure. Um, definitely, you know, people will go out, city departments will go out and build their own websites off of baltimorecity.gov because the existing city website CMS framework is too limiting for them or it takes too long. Um, and so, yeah, this is happening all over the place. <laughs> I mean, this is Which, like, a, you know, it's, a, it's been an issue in enterprise IT forever as well. I mean, it sounds very, it's very, it sounds very similar to the kind of stuff I was doing, you know, when I was working for the enterprise IT companies. Yeah. So it's, I mean, in some ways, you know, more power to people who are solving their own problems, doing what they need to do. Um, the thing that I'm excited about with my role and my team is really trying to help, you know, bring capacity to city staff um, to help them solve their problems, use technology to the best of their abilities um, in a way that utilizes technology really well and also gives them capacity to build the things that they can't just go out and buy or use freemium software for um, and do so in like a secure and compliant way. Um, so that's that's what we're really about. So we're different than kind of your standard government IT shop because we're less focused on that enterprise infrastructure. Mm. We're less focused on risk and security and compliance. And we're more focused on how do we help city staff be enabled by design and technology and empowered by it? And how can we build up their capacity to utilize these tools well? Oh, that's cool. That's a, that's a fun place to be. So now it's like part of this, we're talking about, you know, making sure that you can hit those regulations open source software this is a big part of this now are, do you run into any challenges when it comes to you know getting the approval needed i mean it's you know from a cost standpoint your your total cost of ownership is primarily you doing the work and maybe maybe paying for support on the side but like beyond that it's open source how well regulated is that how well is it trusted in government like what kind of challenges do you have with that yeah so i'll preface this by saying I'm a major open source advocate. Um, It's my go-to in almost any situation. Um, But I think the three top challenges that we face with open source and government is one, misconceptions about what it is. Primarily the misconception that open source means that all of your data is open and out there for people to see, which is just not the same. Having your code base open and available, having people contribute to the code base is not the same thing as people being able to log into your, you know, CRM and see all the people you've been talking to. Um, so that that's one of the big misconceptions. Um, two is that really, like, I mean, this kind of question of the maintenance piece, and you have to have staff to build and deploy the code base. Um, that in itself, even regardless of open source, is like a big issue because most governments are not staffed mm. with developers. 
they're not staffed with people. So they have to often just do professional services contracts with contractors. And when they do that, you know, there's often, you know, a, a tendency to want to try to buy, you know, consumer off the shelf products, cost products um, that might just need some configuration. Um, and those are often not open source. So, you know, this, this, so the second thing isn't really about necessarily open source in general, it's just about capacity. Um, if we had more development capacity within government, I think we'd see a lot more open source stuff. Um, and then the third challenge about open source, oh, I totally blanking, but I'll come, I'll think of it later. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, and then how much in your role do you interact directly with the public? I mean, it, the you know, the city staff is to one degree, they sound, it sounds like that's your primary end user. How much of the public are your end users as well? Yeah. Um, the, so for my team, our focus is resident facing services mm. or, or services that directly impact residents, even if the resident isn't a user of the tool. Um, but so we're, you know, measuring success, for example, by looking at resident satisfaction of a given city service and have we improved that resident satisfaction once we've helped them with a new technology product or procurement. Um, and, um, but yeah, but I would say our two core user groups are those residents, of, you know, in which there's infinite types of user groups and personas, um, and the city staff who are trying to implement and, and work with residents. So how are you doing like requirements gathering from the public? How are you getting, like customer feedback and all of that. I mean, your customers are your residents. So it's kind of a, it's kind of, uh, I don't want to say it's scattershot because it's not. I mean, it's an, it's a segment that's regionally based, but not necessarily like use case based per se. I mean, I guess you've got, you can break it down from there. So how do you go and gather those requirements and get that information from them? Yeah. Uh, so this is a area where technology meets, public policy and kind of longstanding practices of um, resident engagement and community engagement. Um, from our perspective, I mean, a lot of what we do is, you know, standard industry best practices where we'll do surveys, we'll do user research interviews, uh, focus groups. We also have usability testing. Um, we want to do things like A-B testing. Um, so doing a lot of those sorts of things that you see in the private sector um, with this kind of added aspect of making sure that we are, you know, doing things equitably for one, um, you know, making sure that we are compensating participants in user research, which is normal in the private sector, but very difficult to do in government, or at least not necessarily difficult, but there's not a strong precedent for it. Um, and then making mm -hmm. sure that as we do that sort of user research, um, it aligns with and doesn't, it aligns with other community engagement efforts that are already happening outside of you know, the, the tech realm of government um, and that we're not putting undue burden on folks to participate and give their feedback. Um, I think government, you know, there's there's a lot of concern about undue burden um, and making sure that we are not asking people too many times for their thoughts or making sure that we are not like burdening people with having to come to an event as opposed to going out to meet folks where they are um, and that we're making avenues for participation really accessible, um, you know, physically accessible, um, but also accessible for people speaking different languages with different levels of digital literacy and impact and access to, to Wi-Fi and Internet. 
Um, so all of those things are kind of playing into it. Yeah, and that kind of becomes the se- the next question. I mean, like every city has that group of people who are not technically accessible let's say you know they're not necessarily they don't have the high speed internet they don't have the knowledge necessary and so then asking them to go online to interact with their government is is an additional burden that you know they have to handle or or they have to overcome i mean is this something that I'm, i'm trying to figure out how to ask this question like is this something that you're mindful of as you are going through and designing this and is this something that your team helps to overcome even though you're primarily doing the primarily working with you know the digital side of things are you also to help develop if not policy then processes to expand this a little beyond that and help the non-digital folks yes yeah we make sure that we are thinking about the non-digital or the analog experience too and making changes where we can And, you know, and honestly, a lot of the work that we do is just process improvement generally. So that's process improvement on the back end. So that'll impact residents no matter how they're interfacing with government, whether it's digital or not. Um, It's really interesting. We're working. So we just kind of soft launched a project to help with special event permitting in the city. Um, So if you want to have an event in a public space or a right of way, you have to go through a permitting process. Um, Up until Wednesday, it was entirely in person and on paper. You had to drive downtown, find parking, pay for parking, go into the office, wait, you know, maybe, maybe you could get right in, but even then you could be there all day, work, filling up paperwork. You have to go to another building to make your payment for the permit, come back, bring your receipt. Oh, it was awful. So um, so we were putting that process online um, and got the kind of MVP out earlier this week. Um, But one of the interesting things we found during user research was that we talked with a bunch of event organizers who didn't want to do a digital application. They wanted to continue doing it person because that's what they've been doing for 50 years and they were happy with it. Um, And it was really funny too, because uh, like, yeah, this, the feedback that we got from surveys, you know, the kind of demographics of event organizers, so one, you know, many, many of the event organizers who go through this process are returning event organizers, mm. meaning they figured it out once, they've come back and they keep coming. And there's a very small percentage of new event organizers in the city. My perspective is that if we are successful, we will have lots of new event organizers in the city because they'll figure out the process. Um, and then two, you know, somebody I was speaking with recently called it survivor bias. You know, the people we talked to are the survivors. You know, <laughs> they got through that in-person process. They, they figured out the system, you know, maybe it was their work for a big enough nonprofit that it was their job to just handle the city. Um, so they're going to give us all this feedback that maybe we should take with a pretty big grain of salt wow. um, that, you know, that we don't need digital or whatever, because, you know, they made it through. So of course they think they're fine, you know. How do you promote this when it comes out? Are you, I mean, relying on the city newsletters? Like, how are you making sure the right people are finding these tools? So that you can get yeah. the new event organizers, right? It's not just the folks, you know, as you said, the folks who are going to be coming, they just kind of keep wanting to come, I guess. Go meet Carol at the front office. Mm-hmm. So for this project specifically, I- I'm a big believer in soft launches. Mm-hmm. I don't like big bang launches, um, especially in government, because it's a P- everything is a PR nightmare in government. <laughs> so-, <laughs> so we soft launched this, project or the you know the new web content the digital application 
Um, the goal is to just see, you know, how people find it and use it. So we're entering the busy season, which is summer for events, you know, sure. so people are going to the website to refresh themselves on how to do this process or download the PDFs that they thought they had to download. And now they're seeing, oh, I can do this online. So we've probably seen almost 10 applications just in two days oh, come cool. in. Okay. Um, so we have feedback surveys afterwards and just on the website itself to have people tell us what we're doing wrong um, so that we can get that feedback and start to change it, change things. Um, and yeah, we'll just see like how smoothly the process goes, but after, you know, after it's been out for a week or two, then, and we've had a chance to fix major issues, um, hopefully, you know, and we've seen, we've seen some usage. Um, we'll do some bigger comms blasts. Like, you know, we can email the, the department of transportation can email all the event organizers from the past, let them know they can do it online now. Um, I just had a meeting with all the city arts and entertainment districts to let them know that it's out so they can tell all of their districts, organizers. Cool. Um, and then it'll be a little bit of word of mouth. There'll be social media. Um, so, yeah. That yeah. is really, that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of challenges in IT. There's a lot of fun things to do. But, I mean, being able to work in the city that you live, impact your community, speed things up i mean there's meaning behind that it's not just you know making making like elon musk rich or whatever it's you know it's doing something meaningful so like if if i wanted to get involved in my local city and i wanted to do something like this you know outside of like a full-time job is there anything i could do do you have any kind of outreach or do you see any movement in that sense of getting folks in there you know who you know like i I live in the bay area we got tech people in every corner here like why don't we have a stronger city digital movement why don't we have that how do how would someone like me help get something like that going yeah um i think that's a good question so um right now you know there are the kind of organizations formerly known as Code for America Brigades. Um, those exist. I'm pretty sure SF has one. Um, definitely Oakland has one. Um, and I'm sure some neighboring areas do as well. Um, so I would try to find your local organization and see how to get involved with something that's just already yeah. already going. Um, there's also you know opportunities to it's just so hard. I mean, really like finding one of these existing organizations or, you know, there's ways to find some of the better government contractors out there. If you wanted to do things like freelance for government, um, like Bloomworks is one, um, Exegy, there's, I can, you know, rattle off a bunch, um, there's some links. Um, so there's those options, but you know, there's also, there are open source projects that governments use Mm. that if you're a developer that you can contribute to some of those honestly are just core open source projects that everybody in the world uses, um, that are the, the infrastructure, our, the digital infrastructure of our world. So I think that, I think that counts as civic tech. Um, but my dream really for open source and government is that, if you, you know, have an experience on a city website or city form or service and it's bad or you experience a bug that you can just click a little link that says, see the source code, you go to the source code and you can submit a pull request to change it. Mm. Um, that, that's my dream. <laughs> so, um, and I think if we had that, we would see a lot more pathways for participation in civic technology. Um, you know, and it, it would also be, I think, incredibly cool and valuable for youth to be able to get involved in both 
uh, their community and civic life while learning valuable tech skills to be able to have those sorts of pathways. Um, but, you know, until then, there are a number of open source projects that do exist out there that you could contribute to or try to work with your city to deploy. Um, but other than that and working with other organizations that already exist, there's not a lot of clear pathways. Mm. I reached out to my city IT director not too long ago because they're dropping fiber all over the place around here. And I got this idea. You know what? I'm going to start a you know cooperative ISP here in you know Cocky, California. Um, and then I, and then I looked into it and boy, it's a lot of work, but it's not, it's not beyond the ability to be done. Um, but I did find that reaching out to my, my city IT director, like he was just excited to have somebody talk to him about this, who wasn't like, you know, Comcast or, you know, one of the, yeah. one of the big players. So, I mean, there's, there's something to be said for just maybe like if you work in, you know, you're, you're in Baltimore now, you were in Atlanta before we talked about San Francisco. Like I live in Concord, Concord's a little, you know bedroom community basically for the bay area it's the largest city in my county but you know not not as much going on there could be a lot more going on here you know there's something to be said for just maybe reaching out to the city and asking them directly as well like do you do you get folks doing that yeah. at all i mean <laughs> yeah no for sure i overall i would say yes you know especially if you're in smaller communities um, or smaller cities and towns where um they don't have a lot of, you know, they're, they don't have a lot of people already on their teams. Um, they don't necessarily have like a huge backlog of stuff that they're like totally swamped with trying to deal with. Um, because my only caveat really with doing that is just that, you know, some teams are, you know, just fighting fires all day and <laughs> don't necessarily have the bandwidth to manage public interest and figure out ways for public to be involved. That makes sense. But I yeah. do think in general, like people, I, I do think people are generally really receptive of it. Um, and then the other thing that I'll say is I think there might be some hesitation in, in some government circles um, around accepting volunteer help. Um but, you know, I think that's just a conversation that you can have. And I think that if everybody is above board and like focused on outcomes and producing things and it's like there's no conflicts of interest or anything, then I think you can get past those concerns. Yeah, that's fair. Hey, I wanted to break in here real quick and thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support this podcast and help keep it going, please visit compiling.publicgeeking.com forward slash support to find out how. All right, back to the conversation. All right, I'm going to transition a little bit because I want to talk about the fact that you've been doing a lot of writing recently. So this is when you're not working for Baltimore, you're writing, it sounds like. What are you working on? Yeah, um, I've got a couple of things. One is still in the civic tech space. I, start, <coughs> I started my civic tech blog Um Oh, geez, like three or four years ago now, um, right before the pandemic, I think 2019, I guess. Um, and then, you know, I've been pretty on and off with it. Unfortunately, I'd like to be more on with it. And even last year, I went to be part time with the U.S. Digital Service that I could do a fellowship at Georgetown um, on intergovernmental software collaboration. And a big part of my reason to do that fellowship was, oh, I'll suddenly have lots of time to write because I'll be in this academic setting. Um, I can write on my blog, I can publish things. Um, and I did a little bit of that. I, I did a little bit of my blog, I published some stuff outside of my blog, but um, 
I'm just, I'm just such a, it's so hard for me not to do things. I get distracted very easily with um, <laughs> trying, to, trying to do things. So, um, so that I haven't posted in a few months on that, but hopefully we'll be able to soon, especially with some of the updates from Baltimore. And the blog um, is civicunrest.org. Dot com. Dot com. Civicunrest.com. Okay. Yep. Um, and then I also do a bunch of creative writing. So I write short stories and I'm working on a novel. Um, I just had a short story published. It came out today that oh. I'm really excited about. I wrote it years ago, but it takes so many years to like submit to journals, get rejected. It's like a six month review cycle. So it takes forever, but um, I'm really excited that that just came out. So, okay, let's, let's talk about this for a second. Cause there was a, there was a period in my time in of my life where I was submitting to journals somewhat frequently. I never, I think I got one thing published in some obscure literary journal, but we're talking like back in the nineties when that was still a fairly active thing and you could go to any bookstore and find a whole list of these. How has this changed? Like when you say you're submitting to journals, are you submitting like to actual like magazines still a little, the, the, the chat books that come out or are these mostly digital blogs as well? Like what, what does that process look like now? Yeah. So right now I would say that it is pretty similar to what it used to be like, except now um, most submissions happen online. Mm. There's a lot of controversy right now in the writer community around uh, online submission portals. There's basically one, there's a monopoly on them for it's submittable. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, they have a monopoly and they charge fees that basically mean that, you know, before all you had to do was just include us, you know, self-addressed envelope with a postage stamp with your submission you buy the book that had all the addresses for every magazine every book everything and you just send yep yeah so now you pay anywhere from like three to fifteen dollars to submit with this online portal per submission um, and yeah so most most are three to five but i've definitely seen them get up to ten or fifteen dollars to submit wow yeah and um, so that's how you submit. Um, there, it's not super easy to do like a big bulk blanket submission, but part of the like part of the issue with this all being online now and it being so easy with online submission portals is that now journals are totally swamped. They get you know ten thousand submissions for every issue, which makes it harder to like the acceptance rate is lower than the Harvard acceptance rate. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And it's all a crapshoot. I, I feel like it's all a crapshoot. So um, I never take it personally that I barely get anything accepted because it just says what it is. Like, you know, the odds are stacked against you. Um, but yeah, that's what it's like. It's crazy. And they, they do have, there's definitely still a lot of print journals. Um, there's a cool service now. I'm trying to remember the name, but I just, I signed up for it recently where you pay this service and they will get some random journals and send you a random journal every month instead of you having subscribed to, you know, one specific journal or like five different ones. Um, and, but there's also a lot that are online. Um, yeah. So a lot of journals will do both, uh, print and online and then some are just online. Okay. So you just got a short story published. What publication, what was the short story? Um, the publication is the main review and the story is called Zephyr. I can find it really quick because it's, it's an online one. Yeah. Send me a link um, so that I can link it in the, in the show notes. So, okay. So you've got it, you've got it published in the main review. Um, well, it, is this the first, this isn't the first publication that you've, this isn't your first. 
it's my first short story. I've had poetry published before and I've published, you know, I've published things like tech articles and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh God, this is exciting. So, okay. So tell me a little bit about your writing process. Like where do you get the ideas? And then with all the things going on, how do you find the time to like, you know, map it out, write the thing, edit yourself, get it ready for publication? Yeah. Um, I try to have a daily writing practice, which once I started this new job, I kind of put on the back burner a little bit so I could, you know, fully just dive in and get settled. Um, but I'm picking that back up recently, which has been great. Um, I largely get my ideas from, you know, writing prompts that I do, you know, find on the internet or do I do writing workshops. Um, I also read this great piece of writing advice, um, that I can't remember who said it, but it was uh, a prompt for writing stories was to take the people that you love and visit calamity upon them. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was really fantastic because then I was like, oh, I like know the people that I love. I know them very well. It also means I'm very invested in them as characters. And then if I just make bad shit happen to them, which, you know, hopefully will never happen to them in real life. Like, you know, you can really get into the conflict there. You have a vested interest in saving them, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's 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 both good and terrifying advice. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so you're working on a novel. How far along are you in the novel? Um, I have probably about fifty or sixty thousand words. Wow. So maybe about half of a full draft. That's a good chunk. Um, but I would say, I mean, I have that many words, but it'll definitely need a lot of revision. So I mean, you're um, only it's going like th- maybe the first half of a first half of a draft. So are you sitting down and you're just like pumping out the words and getting it down and you're going to go back and review and revise it later? Or do you revise as you go along? What I mostly have been doing is pumping out, trying to get the words out um, and letting that also be, you know, a vessel for discovery about the characters and the plot and where I want it to go. Um, I've reached a point now where I do a lot of handwriting, so it, you know, which in in many ways is good because it's easy for me to have a flow for my handwriting, but then it means I have to go back and type things up, mm-hmm. which is good for revision. It just takes forever. So I'm at a point now where I need to really just sit down and do a bunch of typing and make some concrete decisions about my characters that I've been kind of putting off. But now I'm at a point where I just I need to make those decisions. So that the story can move forward. Do you have this? Do you have the story fully mapped out already, or are you just kind of letting it unfold as you write? I have. So the story takes place over a week. So I have recently decided that I need to actually just map out the day by day of what mm-hmm. happens over this week. Would be helpful for me for yeah. one. <laughs> Um, but I have like a, I have a general outline that I've written up, um, and I have a clear idea of where I want the ending to be. And so now it's just like, you know, hitting, hitting some of the milestones, but having a lot of freedom with all the emotional high points and low points that are happening and then getting to the end. So do you see, uh, do you see that helping do, doing the, the fictional writing, the short story writing, the novel writing, how is this? impacting your tech writing or any of your kind of like thought leadership work like is it does it enhance it is it a nice break from it are they completely separate in your brain yeah i do i feel like i keep them pretty separate in my brain 
but um Although I say that, and I feel like when I do work that has a strong, when I do tech writing that has a strong voice, it gets received really well. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be keeping them as separate, but I definitely think creative writing is just helpful generally for organizing my thoughts, um, having a voice and being able to kind of keep things flowing and making things really readable so people want to read it. Totally. Um, and Yeah. But d- definitely very different audiences. Um so that, that impacts it a bit. I find I, I've, been, I've been doing thought leadership for so long. I was a journalist for a short period of time. I've done some fictional writing, but I never really got anything published because I tried to submit and I just didn't care enough, to be honest with you. Um, Don't give up, bro. Don't give well, up. You know, it's like I have all these thoughts. Like at this point, it's all the nonfiction stuff I want to get out. You know, it's not just it's not even tech writing at this point. I have that's a whole other podcast to be honest with you, but like it's thinking about community and trying to, you know, kind of inspire people to fix things and change things. That's, that's where I want to focus as I get more into my writing. But like the one thing that I find I've been training, um, one of the things I'm doing on the side is training people to be thought leaders and to write about technology. And one of the common themes that I see between both technical writing and creative writing is this idea of creating a narrative, your storytelling. You know, even if I'm walking you through the process of how to install a particular piece of software or trying to introduce a technical concept, I'm trying to tell a story in a way that you can follow it as the reader so that you can, you know, figure out what comes next. So there's like it's connecting those narrative pieces and and still, even though my audiences might be different, as you say, having that strong voice, being able to like speak from, you know, from whom you are and where you're coming from and not having to put that kind of that weird fake professional sheen we have a tendency to want to put over all of our thought leadership that I think is is that's where I see those two coming together um and so like you're a storyteller right so tell me a bit, when it comes to this novel like what you said it, it goes over a week how much are you comfortable sharing with us in terms of where you're going with this yeah um so it basically follows uh three points of view um, cause I like points of view. I know it's kind of trendy right now, but whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, so it follows two cousins who are on a family vacation in South Carolina on the coast. Um, they're both dealing with their own shit. One's 11, one's 13. Um, so it's a little bit of a coming of age story for both of them. Um, but from very different points of view and or vantage points, um, one of them is dealing or not really dealing with, but, um, because that makes it sound like there's some sort of struggle, but they're non-binary and they are just existing and like kind of navigating that a little bit um, while their family is also navigating that. Mm. Um, But meanwhile, that person also has like a high um, level of imagination that's causing them to really see a lot of the magic around them on this uh, coastal island in South Carolina. Um, So they're like, you know, avid reader. They're like, you know, reading about Native American culture. Um, they're reading about biology and geology and kind of making that come alive as they're experiencing this vacation. Um, and then the third point of view is a biologist who has come to this island to do research um, and realizes that she's kind of been duped because she thought she was going to do research with an actual academic institution, but it turns out that this place is just a tourist trap. They have like have a bunch of animals that tourists and, and these kids go look at. Um, but there's not really a lot of rigorous research happening. 
So she's kind of struggling with like, how did I get to this place? How am I going to make this meaningful while I figure out something else? And then she meets these kids and kind of gets entangled in their lives and the lives of their parents. Um, so, but all of this is kind of happening against this backdrop of climate change, social issues. Um, and she, you know, the biologist is very interested in the wildlife of the island, especially tortoises and turtles, reptiles. Um, so she kind of is investigating what she starts to notice an issue with the sea turtles on the island. Um, and then, uh, you know, all, it all kind of comes to a head. <laughs> That's, so, I mean, you, you mentioned the character that sees sort of the magic in around is what is the genre that you're you're targeting here yeah i've always really loved magical realism okay yeah. and this is my first attempt to really bring that to life in my own work um and i thought that it would be i'm the only way that i've been able to really do that so far is through the lens of this 11 year old um but otherwise it is just literary fiction literary you know? fiction okay this is, it's, I'm, hey, well, I want to read this. This sounds good. It sounds interesting. <laughs> so, I mean, what is, your, what is your goal with this? Is it, is the goal to get it finished and published and, you know, get it out? Or, I mean, personal goal, really? I mean. Yeah, I mean, personal goal would just be to finish the damn thing, right? you know? <laughs> uh, but I would love to finish it, get it published. Um, yeah, that that's the dream. Yeah. And then, you know, once I get it published, maybe. Maybe I'll just like leave behind all this tech nonsense and just be a writer. <laughs> that, I mean, that's living the dream, right? Leave the tech behind, yeah. move on to something that'll just let you be yourself. You can do that yeah. with the tech. You can still do it with the technology. That's 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 my struggle. I keep going back and forth on that too. I, I want to get out, but that's where my skills are. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I love using my skills and being useful and helping, you know, be part of my community. So I don't think that'll ever stop, but um, I would like to be writing more. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for everything. This has been a great conversation. Now I want to give you a chance to pitch your thing. What, what do you want to leave everybody with? Yeah. So um, in Baltimore, one of the things that I discovered on my first day that I lived here that I've been part of ever since that I love is the Station North Tool Library. It's a nonprofit lending library for all sorts of tools from hammers and rakes to miter saws, table saws, drills, staple guns, nail guns, um, etc. And they also have classes for learning how to do basic woodworking, plumbing, electrical, um, so that you can start to really be empowered as somebody who lives in a structure. Um, <laughs> and I just, I think it's so awesome. And I've discovered that so many cities actually have these things. Yeah. They're called tool libraries. Go check them out. Um, find out if your city or town has one. If not, maybe start one. Um, but they're amazing resources. And it's been so empowering for me as a new homeowner to be able to actually work on my home and feel like I understand what the problems are. I'm not going to you know, just be taken advantage of by contractors. Mm. Um, and it's such a great resource as well for like everybody in the city, whether you're a renter or a homeowner, to be able to just fix problems that happen in your life instead of dealing with them or having to pay a bunch of money out of pocket. Or to have like a whole, you know, tool library in your own garage, which maybe you're going to use once, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
That's awesome. We have one out in Berkeley as well. That's actually the first one I was introduced to. And I know this is to, to me, this is like where libraries need to move forward. Books are still cool. Knowledge is still cool. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, with more of that being accessible online, libraries need to transition to still being important to a community. And I think things like maker spaces, tool libraries, in addition to that, it's just a matter of finding that funding, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've definitely seen libraries start to do the makerspace thing. I completely agree. And, you know, I'm just a big believer in shared, shared knowledge, shared tools, shared infrastructure, and all of that's part of it. Let it all be free. I love it. Thank you so much again, Shelby. It was great talking to you. And uh, check out civicunrest.com. Everything will be in the notes. So, uh, yeah, take a look there. Thank you again. Thanks, Rob. Personally, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on that novel. It sounds really good. I want to thank Shelby again for taking the time to chat with me today. And I want to thank you for inviting us to hang out between your ears. Talk to you next time. The Compiling Podcast is produced, written, published, hosted, and copyrighted by Rob Sesueta. All opinions expressed belong to the individuals expressing them and not necessarily the organizations to which they belong. To find show notes and listen to additional episodes, please visit compiling.publicgeeking.com. Talk to you soon!